Thanks for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. I'm fortunate to have some sponsors supporting the show whose products I genuinely love and recommend. I'll start with a word on those so the rest of the episode will have no interruptions. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Levels. Levels uses continuous glucose monitoring to track your blood sugar in real time. It allows me to see the impact that everything I do has on my metabolic health so that I can optimize my diet and exercise accordingly. Wearing the Levels patch, I feel like I'm living in the future. There's this moment when you raise your phone to the back of your arm, it vibrates and shows your glucose level right on the screen. It's this instantaneous look inside yourself, an in-the-moment snapshot of what's going on inside your body. And while it's only showing one simple measurement for now, it's enough for me to see the future. And that's exciting. It's exciting because I believe that we can live meaningfully longer and healthier lives than we do today. And I believe technologies like Levels will help us to get there. Levels is currently running an exclusive beta program with a wait list of over 100,000 people, but you can skip the line and join Levels today by using my link in the show notes, levels.link slash jake. Again, that's levels.link slash jake. This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to the conversation for quite some time. You're a, a big profile on Twitter. You're founder <laughs> and managing partner of Chapter One, previously VP of product and revenue at Tinder. Uh, a lot of experience working with startups, now investing with startups, and excited to ask you some questions. Uh, I think first and foremost, the way I like to get started is asking guests to uh, share their story from as early as they're willing to start to how they got to where they are today and some of the decisions you made along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in around Menlo Park, um, always kind of around technology and the startup industry, although I didn't know it at the time um, because I was a kid and, um, you know, had a pretty, pretty normal childhood. I uh, played a lot of sports. I was always interested in, um, uh, I was an early user of AOL and um, used to hang out in in chat rooms and one of my hobbies growing up was uh, I collected a lot of sports memorabilia and, and, and cards. And so um, I guess my first kind of my entry point to entrepreneurship was um, I ran a pretty prolific uh, memorabilia operation out of my bedroom where we were, I was going to AOL chat rooms and um, negotiate um, deals and we'd use old fashioned um, uh mail and, and, and UPS to ship, ship things around the country and around the world. And, um, really like love that process of, of, of deal making and 
um, kind of the intersection of social and, and finance and investing, whether I knew it or not happened to me at, at a pretty young age, then ended up going to UCLA eventually and thought I was going to become a screenwriter because I was studying English at the time. And, um, you know, I, I had some success there. I, I got my first screenplay option, but sort of hated all the gatekeepers within Hollywood and entertainment. So ended up quickly leaving. Um, my first real job was at UTA, which is a talent agency in LA where I was working in the digital department, um, which was trying to take YouTube creators and transition them to TV and, and film. Um, and so I was, I was kind of one foot in tech and one foot in um, kind of old media and decided to just do it. So I, I um, one day moved back to San Francisco and then started applying to, to jobs um, at basically any startup that would, that would accept my application. Um, had a pretty brutal and painful process. I applied to be an early employee at Uber. This is 2010-11 Uber, Airbnb, and Twitter. Um, and didn't get any of those jobs, but a startup in Kansas City called Zarly um, wanted to hire me. And so within 24 hours, I moved to Kansas City and became um, a member, an early member of their team. I was doing marketing, community, basically everything they wanted me to do and ended up um, really falling in love with product. And so that became the focus of my career, um, was primarily doing growth, growth related product work and then ended up going to Tinder where at the time in 2015, we didn't have a large product org. And so um, quickly realized there was a really cool opportunity to, to help build the subscription business and um, join when we were doing, I think, $20 million in recurring revenue and helped with a great team build that to a public company. Um, we were doing, when I left, about a billion and a half in revenue per year. Uh, and so kind of all the while I was investing in, in startups um, through my own syndicates, other people's syndicates, um, I ended up becoming a scout for Index Ventures and then officially raised my first fund in 2019. So um, that's kind of my life in a nutshell, but, um, but yeah, happy to answer any other questions. Yeah, it's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing the story from uh, the early days. I had heard from listening to you on other podcasts that you had had this uh, business or whatever you might call it, hobby as a kid where you were uh, writing a, a pretty absurd number of letters, it sounds like, to <laughs> famous athletes and, and the like. I think Bill Gates was on the list as well um, and getting some pretty cool responses. And uh, it resonates with me because I, I've been doing probably not as prolifically, but I've always reached out to people uh, and, you know, mainly via email since, I don't know, like you know, middle school or, or high school or something. And that ultimately sort of came to fruition in the form of the podcast where that's how I get all my guests. And uh, I appreciate the fact that like you reach out to a bunch of people who are unlikely to respond. Uh, you get a few unlikely responses. Uh, what's, what's something that sort of stuck with you from that very early, like formative experience, just doing what you love, meeting athletes, selling cars and things like that to, uh, you know, later days building a company, um, you know, as heading revenue at, at Tinder and then maybe more likely like, you know, doing investing now and meeting a lot of great founders and, and raising capital from LPs. How is that like sending letters as a kid turned into an actual like career hack if, if it's via emails or, or the like? Yeah, I think it's definitely more related to investing, but 
I just learned at an early age that you really can reach out to anybody um, as long as you can find their physical address or email address. And, um, and I have still have zero fear of rejection and I don't take, I don't take a non-response personally. Um, so as an investor, it's kind of having the courage to email founders or other folks when, um, when you don't necessarily know if they will respond. Um, and then, you know, even beyond founders, like just mentors, people you think are interesting, it could really be anybody who, who you think um, you can learn from. And a lot of times, if you can offer something to those people before, as, as part of like the, the, the upfront ask to, to, to have a conversation, it goes a long way. So um, one like real example was I used to go to Golden State Warriors basketball games, and I was obsessed with game used basketball shoes. Um, and my way to get players to give me their shoes after the game was I would give them, I would go on eBay. You could buy a big, like a lot of cards is what they called them. So you could buy like a hundred um, cards of that player and every player needs their own cards because they use them to send their fans autographs. Um, so I, I kind of knew that if I brought like a big uh, like sleeve of their own cards and give it, give it to them, then ask them for, uh, you know, in return, a pair of shoes after the game, they would be more likely to do so. Um, and that kind of, and, and that worked like going and giving them something before you make an ask um, really did work. So when I approach people, um, I always think about what I can offer them, whether it's information, a point of view um, before asking for their time. And I think, um, I think that's just a big part of, of my approach is always trying to kind of add value whenever you ask for anything. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, one thing, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you even thought to like think of what the athlete might need and like you thought of something that's just super tangible and obvious and like is going to apply for all of them, most likely trying to translate that to, you know, investing or what I'm doing, like reaching out to people to have them on the podcast, et cetera. Um, it's interesting to think about like what's something that everyone needs and, and you just sort of mentioned like information is helpful to a lot of people if you find information that that they need um but for me there's sort of a balance as well as like people if you sort of load up too much on what you're giving then people view it as like a, a time suck they're like oh this is like way too in detail like i don't even want to get into this like and they just move the trash do you yeah. ever think about like how you know it's it's obvious enough if you give them a sleeve of sports cards um like here it is, you know, no time. This is useful to you. Give me your shoes. Uh, but like, do you think about how to compress the value that you offer in, you know, analog situations as an investor or the like, um, when sort of giving that value up front before you ask for something? Yeah, I think um, it comes down from having, well, A, I would say it's become easier as my career has progressed, like, and you become more, more of a known quantity in whatever field you're in. And so it's definitely become easier. I think the, the bare minimum is just, you know, respecting someone's time. And so not asking for too much up front and then doing some research. Um, so your ask is personalized and that recipient feels like you've actually taken the time to, to understand a bit about their lives or whatever, um, whatever they're doing. So it's, 
it's not just like this spray and pray approach. So definitely personalize. Um, and then also understanding uh, timing. So I think when, you know, when, when I reach out to founders, like you have to time it well. So it's not um, like if you reach out to a founder right after they finish fundraising, as an example, they're probably tired of talking to investors. Um, and so you have to think about kind of their day-to-day lives and um, pick, pick and choose your spots. But uh, yeah, I think, I think you always have to just consider like the day-to-day realities of whoever you're reaching out to and um, try to, to respect their time. I think, I think is probably the biggest, the biggest part. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so I, I won't dwell too much. This topic is, is very fascinating to me. Obviously, I sort of incorporate it in my day to day. But um, I want to go back to something you mentioned also in the earlier part of your story, when you were looking to break into tech out of the entertainment industry, and you applied to Uber and Airbnb. I think you were like, you know, you, you said it was early days, but I think you would have been like top 10 or 20 employees <laughs> at each of them. Um, and those are, you know, behemoth company like you couldn't have applied to better more promising companies at that time probably um was it just you know were you applying to 100 companies and those were on the list or do you think there might have been something about what you looked for in startups that um you know first of all that that would be useful if if that if there was sort of a secret recipe that you can now apply to your investing framework but i'm curious if you know despite what you've learned in between even back then you think there was anything if you can remember that you looked for in companies to apply for that stood out that led you to identify those couple? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it, frankly, was luck and circumstance. So in the case of Airbnb, um, I was lucky to have known uh, Doug Leone, who's a partner at Sequoia Capital and basically went to his office one day and uh, asked him what the best company his portfolio was or where he thought I should, I should look at in his immediate response was Airbnb. I think they had probably 40, 40 employees at the time. Um, and then, you know, I just thought about what my skill set could do for that company. And, um, you know, I think, I think for both Airbnb and Uber, they were both pretty operationally intensive businesses. And so it wasn't, um, going to be just a bunch of engineers writing, you know, writing code and, and building software. They needed a lot of humans to help build those companies. So I didn't come from a technical background at the time. And, and so that was part of it was looking for companies who had some operational complexity where, um, where I felt like my background could, could fit in. Uh, the Uber example was just luck as well. I was working out of a co-working space called a rocket space, which, um, people who, who were in San Francisco in like the 2010 era probably remember, but, um, I sat next to the the first 10 employees of Uber, they were at the desk next to me and um, just kept seeing the team grow and would like talk to them, um, you know, during the day. And it just seemed like they were just kicking butt. Um, and and I, I use a service and it was just so clear if you lived in San Francisco at the time that that Uber was necessary. It took like 45 minutes for taxis to, to arrive and you had these kind of shady black cars driving on the city um, who would, who would kind of yell at you out the window and ask you if you needed a ride. Like it was just a very inefficient, uh, marketplace and, and system. So, um, but they were pretty lucky. One was asking someone I knew who was smarter than me for advice. And the other one was just putting myself in the right place. I think 
I knew if I went to, if I moved to San Francisco and um, worked out of the, what was the best co-working space at the time that I would meet a lot of people. So you have to put yourself in situations where you can get lucky. And some of that um, back then was, was physical locations. I think now increasingly it's become uh, like creating serendipity for yourself in digital world. So joining the right discord groups, um, being active on Twitter, like really being online, um, I think is probably like the new version of me hanging out at, uh, at, at, at rocket space. Yeah. It's interesting. That sort of leads to, uh, what I was thinking you're talking about, you know, the, the serendipity, like you said, of, you know, asking someone, you know, in person in their office, uh, Doug went when he referred you to Airbnb and then the co-working space with Uber also being based on wh- where you are in person. And now, you know, with things, uh, I understand like you're making all your investments over zoom, everyone's working remote, um, that in-person spontaneity is being lost in a lot of ways, but perhaps as you sort of suggested, re- replaced by sort of digital serendipity. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about sort of the differences between the two. Like you, you obviously, you know, you save on, I guess there's a couple of things, right? Like one is, you know, if you live in India or Africa, you sort of have at least closer to the same opportunity to find that online serendipity, join the right discord, uh, you know, follow the right people on Twitter, listen to the right podcasts and things like this um, as someone in, you know, Nebraska or Boston, uh, whereas it would have been much easier for the person in Nebraska or Boston to move to San Francisco in the 2000s. Uh, So I'm curious, just your thoughts on this sort of transition from a world in which physical serendipity is sort of king to one where potentially digital serendipity sort of takes over. Yeah, I think the, as you said, everything's much more global, which is awesome um, for the entire ecosystem and creates a lot more inclusivity and um, diversity, which is great. The other piece of, of the online world, which is better, I think, than the physical world is you just have a much longer tail of, of interests and, and groups. Like if I wanted to, I don't know, join like an NFT group in San Francisco right now, um, that wouldn't happen at a co-working space and it'd be really hard to like show up to a physical location um, and find my people. But I, I find that um, online, at least you, it's kind of like your, your imagination is the limiting factor. You can, if you dive deep into any, any niche or sub vertical, like odds are there, there are other people who are equally passionate about that online too. So, um, you know, it just, I think it comes down to being hyper curious and allowing yourself the time and space to kind of wander the internet and find those communities. And then once you find them being, being active and contributing and actually adding, adding value, especially, you know, we're seeing this more with DAOs in web three, um, like figuring out ways to contribute to those groups and suddenly your, your reputation, um, sort of precedes yourself. I've seen 18 year olds in crypto who are more famous in web three than, than like web two builders who built some of the biggest social products. Um, and that's because they're, they're kind of living and breathing the space and they're actively building, building products within, within web three. So, um, not to make this a crypto podcast, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's a really amazing time where you can kind of find your, 
find your tribes online and um and a lot of those groups you can lead to to opportunities that you can't even predict whether it's jobs or or co-investments um it's really just an amazing time to be to be online yeah and uh i mean this is I'm sure we will make this a little bit of a crypto podcast. This is at least like a third or or a half of a crypto podcast, but also about- (laughs) We uh, can go there. (laughs) Yeah, we we will, but but also about people's stories. So I want to touch on a couple more things that you had mentioned. Uh, One, uh, and maybe there's no real answer here, but you you didn't end up at Uber or Airbnb. And I think I choose to look at things like they happen for the best and things certainly seem to have worked out for you, but you started in Kansas City. And uh, I'm curious- if uh, maybe independently from the job itself, if you can sort of separate it, if you had any takeaways or learnings or, or things that have sort of stuck with you from that experience, just living in Kansas City, which in the industry that, that you're in, whether it's, you know, angel investing, venture investing, or previously like working for a startup, that's actually a pretty unique experience. And I'm curious if you, you took anything away from, from living out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's actually informed uh, so many parts of my career and in really deep ways. So um, I think the most obvious thing is when we were building consumer products in Kansas city, we had a really, I would say like a, a really real feedback loop from people who really like did not care about the tech industry and just cared about um, whether what you were building made sense to them and was simple and added value like the kind of insider baseball of of the tech industry just didn't apply there and so as a product person um was just like the best audience to to build for um because i think when you build products and specifically if you build products within kind of like tech bubbles you you sort of build meta products for people who are like you and um forget that there's a big world out there so um you know especially at tinder like i was always thinking about um, the people I met along the way who weren't in the Bay who were in Kansas city and other parts of, of the country where I traveled. Um, and it really, I think to me reinforced the idea that there's, you know, you shouldn't be building for, um, for your peers in tech, especially this is, this, this applies mainly to consumer. Uh, you, you really need to, to expand outside your, your bubble. And then in investing, I, you know, I love investing in companies who have, a go-to-market that's um, focused on, I call it like the rest of the U.S. So not, not the Bay Area or New York or L.A. Um, kind of like, like the flyover go-to-market. And I've invested in in quite a few companies um, in the past couple of years. One's Misfits Market, which is um, I don't know if you know Imperfect Produce, but it's um, uh, probably a direct competitor to Imperfect Produce. And their whole go-to-market was actually targeting um, the Midwest, which I thought was really smart because it was, there was more white space. And then, um, there's a company called Sunday Long Care I invested in, which just raised the series C, but they're building, um, really smart, personalized lawn care that is delivered to you every quarter, um, in a box using, they use, um, basically Google, Ma- Google maps, um, uh, data to, to create a custom, lawn kit for your your lawn it sounds um it sounds so simple but when when like that pitch was going around the bay area um i think a lot of people laughed at it um but it turns out that 
there are 87 million lawn owners in the U S and most of them aren't in San Francisco. Um, which again, like, I think I kind of looked back on, on the Kansas city days and, and thought about, um, just the needs outside of, of, of kind of the tech audience. And, um, and so that's a big part of what I do is thinking about, about what people, um, people outside of tech need. And, and that's what I try and build and invest in. Nice. Yeah. It's, it certainly sounds like that was a, uh, a useful experience. And I'm sure you, you gained a lot just from the experience with, with work as well, but living in Kansas city independently sounds like it was, uh, worth the uh, year or two or however long that you were there. Uh, last sort of, uh, you know, off script thing. Not, well, there's no script, but uh, <laughs> off, off general topics. I was going to say, I didn't see a script. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Off general topics. Uh, and, you know, basically before we get into crypto and investing and the like, uh, you mentioned that you're an English major. Um, heard on another podcast that you were really inspired by Catcher in the Rye and particularly and, and wanted to, uh, you know, you thought you were going to do a lot of writing in your life. Uh, and you mentioned like the screenplays and all of that. Uh, I'm curious if, if this bug hasn't completely left you, if, if you are going <laughs> to write a book someday, uh, what you think that book might be about is it going to be like a fiction or nonfiction or, uh, anything you could sort of speculate if you could see yourself writing one day. That's a great question. I've, um, thought a lot about writing a book and, um, you know, in the past couple of years I've explored different ideas around, around books for, for, uh, based on how to build products and, um, how I kind of the frameworks I've used to design products. I actually think that's like, it's almost like by the time you write the book, the playbooks already change. Um, and so I think probably for me more likely would be doing like a sub stack. That's, um, probably has like the, the, format of a book, but it's just delivered to you more in real time. Everybody I talk to writes a book, um, just goes through hell for years to get that thing published. And so I think, you know, going back to kind of my entertainment industry experience, like I'm not a big fan of gatekeepers. Um, I personally have like a fairly large online audience at this point. So just going direct to that audience, I think is really probably the path I take in terms of, um, the topics it, it's it would probably be nonfiction at this point um and it would, you know i think right now my mind's really wrapped around web3 and crypto but that changes all the time so i'm not i'm not entirely sure what what it'd be what it would be about but um but yeah I, I remain open to uh to the idea of writing a book writing's hard hard it's a hard skill to to kind of stay keep fresh. I feel like, um, I was probably a better writer maybe 10 years ago. And now I feel like I just fumble around when I, when I open up, a um, a, a word doc to write anything. So, but hopefully one day we'll see. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't sell yourself short. I, I read some of your stuff. You have been publishing on medium for, uh, for almost a decade, I guess. And I think it started in like 2013 or so, and, uh, they're short pieces, but hopefully you can, <laughs> you can share something longer at some point, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would like to read it. And you mentioned, you know, you've built this big Twitter following. I sort of started off by introducing you, I think first and foremost as a big Twitter profile and you laughed, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you know, you've done a lot of other things as well, but it's actually like a notable thing these days. Like you build a following of a hundred thousand people, a million people on Twitter. It can be potentially like life-changing if you sort of handle it the right way. And, uh, 
you know, you can get financial freedom through that. You get distribution for your ideas and can make some influence that you want to make in the world. Uh, you had written, I think at some point or tweeted or something about how, uh, I think it was the best decision of your career. You said to start living your life very online and be very open about life and, and things like this. Um, so, you know, best decision implies, obviously you've gained a lot <laughs> from it and it's pretty apparent, but, uh, I'm curious, like both the pros and cons of, of that decision and maybe some insight into like how and when you made it and all that. Yeah, definitely. Um, it kind of happened by accident. I think in 2008, I joined t Twitter um, and always loved kind of putting myself out there online in terms of writing. So um, I think when my audience sort of grew was at Tinder when we were, um, when we were doing so well and being on the kind of like the lead of the revenue team, most of our, um, a lot of our public success was around the fact that we were becoming a, uh, just a behemoth of a business. We were the top grossing app in, in the world. We were just like completely, I think capturing people's imagination because Tinder was seen as being this kind of like fun hookup app and, you know, underneath the hood, we were building a really interesting business. And so, um, so I just started sharing, sharing a lot of the kind of behind the scenes um, decision-making and thoughts around what we were doing and people, people thought it was interesting. And so I didn't, um, there wasn't a, a, a strategy around anything. It was just sort of like, Hey, um, I found the more, the more I kind of gave online, the more I received in terms of meeting interesting people. And, um, and also one of the best parts I think is it just shortcut introductions to people in terms of them knowing me, like even this conversation now, um, you have a lot of context for who I, am what I've done. And, um, uh, I've always tried as much as possible to make the online version of me as close to the real life version of me. Although you do sometimes take on like the role of a, a character, but, um, but I've, you know, I think when I meet people, they have a sense of, of what I'm interested in and, um, kind of how I, how I think about the world and, and approach life. So, um, yeah, I think there's very little downside to being, being very online, there used to be um, groups of people who were worried for some reason that it would hurt them at work um, or whatever else. And I think the opposite's been true for everybody I've known who's who have kind of lived this way. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point you bring up that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I, I'm much later to the game, just started a Twitter, um, I think like January of, of last year of 2020. And uh, the podcast, you know, that summer and, uh, blog a little before that. And so it's starting like my sort of online, um, brand or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and to me, it's like very obvious that when you're on Twitter and tweeting and all that, like, it's a very, um, you know, I, I don't think it's that people are trying to be inauthentic I mean, maybe some people are, um, but I don't think like everyone's trying to be an authentic, but I do think that everyone, uh, you know, with almost no exception, like comes off, you know, you, you get a different sense of who they are from like looking at their Twitter and, and part of it's like good and accurate, but it's yeah. just impossible to like portray yourself completely accurately via, you know, 
280 character tweets once in a while or, or whatever it is like it overemphasizes certain things and underemphasizes others or things are completely absent um so i think about this a lot and like i try to make my twitter somewhat in line with who i am and i, I do think in some ways it's like even more at my core than certain things that i do share with like my good friends but on the other hand there's certain like sort of trivial day-to-day -day things that never come up on twitter that are just like totally absent from someone looking at me from the outside in um, what do you think for your sort of online presence is, is a little bit missing maybe that people, you know, assume wrongly about you or, or don't, don't know about you? Um, and what do you think that, you know, contrary to that, what, what do you think that Twitter does a good job that, that your Twitter does a good job of sort of capturing uh, about who you are? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think probably what's missing is just the day to day, um, like, I don't want to say struggles because that sounds, but just like the fact that, um, you know, like even when you like kind of make it, you're still constantly doubting yourself and you're always um, kind of questioning how you'll stay relevant, how, you know, how kind of like you'll evolve and um, whether, whether what you're doing is, is important or valuable. Um, and so in the context of, of, of Twitter, I think it, it appears that everybody's kind of figured their lives out and has, um, just has like wakes up in the morning and like everything's working and, and, and they're just constantly winning. But, um, the truth is, um, all of us have failures and, and I have many every single day. Um, but, but it's not, it's not always, um, uh, like it's not always winning. Um, I think people on Twitter, don't share kind of the, the, the struggles quite as much as they do the success. Um, so, and then, you know, I think another part of it is I think people probably bucket you into being like a Twitter um, for me specifically, like a Twitter investor or someone who, um, who kind of made their career because of Twitter. And I think that's probably not um, uh, entirely true. Like I, it's been, it's been, um, uh, as I said, kind of earlier in my, my career with all the, the jobs I haven't gone, um, it hasn't been easy. And so, um, Twitter has certainly been a great part of, of, of helping me advance my career, but, um, but I wouldn't call myself, um, like a Twitter ambassador. I think, um, I think I want to be known for, for just being a, a great investor and a, hopefully a good person. And that's, that's more than, uh, more than my Twitter presence, I think, um, uh, kind of allows sometimes. Yeah. I think, uh, what you said definitely applies for me as well. And, and I'm sure a lot of people, and again, it's not necessarily like not wanting to share that, you know, it's like everyone has problems, but no one has problems on Twitter. And I don't think that it's that no one wants to share problems necessarily, but it's like, okay, you share your problems and like, let's take it to the extreme. Like you're Jeff Bezos or something. No one cares about your problems. And in fact, <laughs> everyone like comes down hard on you because you share that you have a single problem and like everyone has problems. It's all relative, et cetera. So there's like, no, you know, it's partly, I think just the design of the thing, uh, yeah. that, that makes it the way it is, uh, for better or worse. But, um, I think it's sort of important to acknowledge the difference between people and their Twitters. Cause I think it is, very real. Um, 
obviously, you know, it's pretty apparent from like our conversation and also just getting to know you through, through your public content prior to this, um, that, you know, persisting through failure and just having a general, um, you know, obviously you feel rejection and, and failure just like the next person, but just being totally, you know, uh, fearless about this sort of thing and continuing to go for it, no matter what has been a, a theme in your career, if there's another and your life and your success and everything like that, if there's another sort of theme or like core principle or just something that you think about often that you think has equally or, or close to equally sort of contributed to your success. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what one of those things might be. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's more of a mindset. It's like, I've always, I think I always have the mindset of being a little bit of an underdog. And so it's placing yourself in situations where you actually are the underdog and trying to, and then once you, once you achieve what, what you want, then like you remove yourself from that situation and go advance to the next level. And then you're, you're suddenly an underdog again. So it's trying to constantly just like challenge yourself to, to be um, at the bottom of, of whatever totem pole you're trying to get to and then um, trying to level up. And so that's been a big, a big part of it. And then, you know, I think another part of it's just like trying to be, trying to be happy with where you are in your career and your life and not um, just sort of know that things will, will work out however they're supposed to, to work out. And so um, I used to stress a lot about everything I was doing, whether it was, whether I was, you know, picking the right job or whatever it might be, but um, just kind of learning to trust your gut has been a big part of my, my learning. And um, so it, it might seem like overly generic, but, um, but a lot of it's just kind of having, um, uh, trying not to, to stress. To, I find when, like, especially for investing, if my head isn't clear and if I'm stressed or feeling external pressure, I make really poor decisions. So I try and just be super level-headed throughout the day. And, um, even when things go wrong and I find, I find I make really good decisions when, just when I'm, uh, when I'm not stressed out. So, um, again, that might be pretty basic, but I try, I try not to, uh, not to get too emotional, whether it's, uh, happy or, or sad about anything that happens in my life. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. And I think there's like a lot of, uh, uh, what do you call it? A bumper sticker wisdom that is actually like really underrated. Not that that was bumper sticker, but you said like basic. <laughs> it like, might be. Yeah, no, maybe it is. I don't know. We, we didn't uh, condense it enough perhaps for, for a bumper sticker, <laughs> but you said basic. I, I think there's a lot of sort of basic things that people sort of know are right, but, or, or would be helpful, but they just don't sort of put them into practice. And if everyone just did the, the very basic, like most fundamental things that they sort of have an idea are right, then uh, we, we wouldn't need to stress about uh, all these other things that there seem to be to need to figure out. It's, it's like really it's all sort of fundamental if, if you just focus on those things, I, I personally think. Um, all right. So I think it's time to uh, jump into crypto now. We've been <laughs> waiting long enough. Um, so how, I guess let's start. How, how did you uh, come to get into crypto in the first place? Was it Bitcoin? Was it a little bit later than that? Uh, curious to hear sort of your origin story there. Yeah, it was originally Bitcoin in 2013, I want to say, and um, just dabbled and bought some Bitcoin and forgot it 
existed. Um, uh, was looking at different projects as an investor in probably 2015 that I unfortunately um, did not invest in, such as Filecoin. Um, and then probably towards 2017, um, really started to get into altcoins and was kind of falling down the rabbit hole. And um, through that process, I was still at Tinder, was spending most of my nights and weekends investing in in private sales. So I was doing um, uh, things outside of my outside of my fund. Um, I had I, I mentioned I raised or I didn't raise. I was at Scout for Index Ventures, and they gave me a pool of capital to invest in, um, which I decided to dedicate primarily to, to crypto. And so um, in 2017 and 18, um, invested in some really um, interesting companies. So the seed rounds of Dapper Labs and Compound Finance, The Graph, Blockfolio, Lolly, um, and some others. And sort of, um, uh, you know, in 2019 and 20, um, or the first part of 2020, those investments weren't really performing that well. Like it wasn't clear that any of them were working and I was simultaneously raising my first fund. So I had to, um, at least while I was fundraising, take a more generalist approach to what I was doing. Um, and then summer of DeFi in 2020 and then um, kind of the NFT explosion in, in, in Q1 2021, um, um, a lot of those investments started to do quite well. Um, and then the graph also started to do really well. So um, I've been caught up in, in all of the excitement on the building side. I think the most exciting part of Web3 is just the amount of creativity and, um, and talent that is flocking to the space right now. And as an investor, it's, um, it's where I'm spending 100% of my time right now. And so... Um, it's been for me just like a really cool moment where um, I feel like I'm aligned with my investors and have the data points to show that um, that not only you know do I love the space that I've invested well in it and um, and have just like a, a pretty long leash to go to go explore what's kind of what's happening in the space right now and um, and so yeah we're we're so excited about so many parts of, of the ecosystem, but, um, but what a crazy year. And, um, just, I've never felt more excitement in, in the founder community. Um, uh, I was around during mobile in 2010. I think the difference here is like, everybody's way more online. So the excitement in 2008 to 10, uh, in mobile was similar, but it was more happening. Like, as I mentioned, like, in co-working spaces and now um, it seems like that everything being Twitter kind of being the microphone for, for crypto has just made it um, just a phenomenon like I've never seen before. And it's just been awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned that you uh, invested in Dapper Labs early on and it wasn't necessarily clear that it would be a big success until more recently, but what did you see initially? When, Cause I think that's billion, several billion dollar, maybe company now, um, hugely successful. What did you see back then that was exciting versus, you know, since then NFTs have really come onto the main scene um, and what's sort of come to fruition of what you expected or, or what's different? Uh, just curious to hear sort of like the before and after there, pre and post uh, huge success. 
Yeah, I was in um, a really lucky position where I was at Tinder. And so I was, we were building and selling digital goods at Tinder. Um, they weren't NFTs, but everything we were creating was unique IP that um, was software and, and, and had zero marginal costs. And so when I saw CryptoKitties come out, I had this um, background in collecting, which I mentioned when we first started, I was, you know, an obsessive collector growing up. And so the mental leap to, from physical to digital goods, um, based on my childhood and also the fact that I was building digital goods at Tinder was really easy for me to conceptualize digital value and how, um, you know, the younger audiences and, um, people who were internet native, um, could value digital goods the same way you value physical goods. And so CryptoKitties came out and it just sort of checked all the boxes for what I thought was interesting from, um, from digital goods. Goods It had scarcity, it had community. Um, it was definitely experimental and just knew upon talking to Roham that if they could apply what they were doing to other IP and if they could partner with really interesting um, uh, folks like the MBA, then, you know, they, they could have a really, it could be a really powerful thing. And so, um, I don't claim to, to have like had the vision for it becoming this big because I don't think any of us did. did. And if we, if we did, we would have all probably tried to put a lot more money into the company, but, um, but did it had so many interesting themes and, and, um, and, you know, a lot of people thought crypto kitties was, was silly and it kind of was, but, um, but, you know, I think the, the common like trope you hear is like the best consumer investments start out looking like toys. And it, it certainly was a toy that became and has become a massive business. It's um, really one of the larger marketplaces in the world right now. And is it, you know, $7.5 billion um, company in terms of where they raised the last round. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so even more than NFTs, I saw a tweet from you that you're you're excited about ENS um, identities tied to wallets. You said you were thinking about that a lot. What are you thinking about, and uh, why is that concept generally so so exciting to you? Yeah, I think ENS domains have exploded. Um, uh, there's you know four hundred thousand plus unique ENS domains, and what really caught my attention was when I started in crypto your wallet was this kind of private, dark, shadowy place that you didn't want to share online. And uh, when I saw people attaching their, really their Twitter identities to their ENS domains, which, you know, you can go to on Twitter and you see .ENS is as people's profile names. And um, what you can do is you can copy and paste that into Etherscanner anywhere else. And look at all their digital assets, which um, to me, if you think about the world of finance, how um, how private uh, uh, kind of like our bank accounts were up until really a few years ago, and I think Robin had probably changed a lot of this, but finance has become so social and public and the fact that people are willing to attach their IDs, uh, their, their real life identities to their wallets and publicly share that is really powerful and creates this really interesting foundation to create really amazing social experiences. And so, um, so yeah, it was, 
I think this is a really, um, probably for me, it's more interesting than, than NFTs. And, um, reason being, I just think it's, it's like a really interesting phenomenon, which is new to me in, in my life, which is people are just being a lot more transparent and social with, um, everything they, everything they do with their finances, everything they invest in, um, all the projects they mint, everything they, you know, eventually the DAOs they join, like it's, it's, you know, it's, you're seeing like people open source their own personal financial activity, which, um, which is really a powerful web three concept because it's uniquely web three being it's on chain. So you actually have that data, which anyone can query and, and, and view at any time. Um, whereas web two is still, uh, very much close, close source and behind, um, whatever brokerage or, or platform you use, like that's not open, open for the public to see. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of threads, but I just think, um, I think the fact that we have now these, you know, ENS domains and, um, could end up being larger than the Facebook, the Facebook login in terms of just creating really simple ways to onboard into any network. And you have your, um, ENS also allows you to create profiles so you can create avatars. You can attach biographical information and that becomes portable to any web three application you use, which is again, even more powerful, I think than the Facebook login, because this is all attached to actual financial activity that you do on chain. Um, and it's, let's be honest, it's not stuck within Facebook, um, which, which is not the ideal, um, uh, authentication layer for the internet, as we've seen in, in, in recent times with just Facebook's tribulations. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a powerful concept. I think people are, um, starting to, to really tune into what's going on and, um, and certainly where I'm spending most of my free time, um, exploring. Right. So uh, I understand you guys are at, uh, at your fund chapter one, you guys are incubating a, a web three product, uh, but it's in stealth mode. And the nature of stealth <laughs> mode is I'm sure you can't really say anything about it. If there's anything you can say, uh, feel free to do so. If not, though, I'd be remiss to uh, wrap our conversation without having to talk a little bit about chapter one and, and what makes you guys different. Uh, in particular, like you, you raised at a time, like you mentioned, where uh, at least the first fund you, you raised um, sort of before some of these crypto bets you had made started paying off. And so you had imagined it, I would think, or, or at least presented it at the time because you didn't really have the, uh, the investments track record to show that you could be like a crypto focused fund. But at this point, have you sort of uh, come to the, the place where you are looking at this as more of a primarily crypto fund uh, where you'll be investing in crypto projects or still startup landscape as a whole? And uh, I know I'm giving you a lot to chew on here, but yeah, this will yeah. be, be my last question. Uh, as a part of that, you also start a chapter one like on your own uh, as sort of what people are calling like a solo capitalist, but you've since gone ahead and, and started to build out a team. And I'm curious what sort of was behind that decision. And since I just gave you about five questions, you, you <laughs> can feel free to answer like any one or two of them, but I uh, want to end off by talking about chapter one. Yeah, so the incubation um, has mostly been in, idea exploration process around um, 
the intersection of social experiences that we know well from web two and um and crypto so kind of the intersection of social and crypto and trying to reimagine um uh what kind of a web three social platform might look like and what people would do and what they care about and so um it might actually lead to us the funny thing is we've explored this some of these ideas so so deeply and we're starting to meet teams that are actually building what we're what we've been exploring and so i'm happy to invest in those ideas um as opposed to building them but it's been an amazing experience for just like i really feel like we've gone down uh you know we've gone down the idea maze and we've really like fleshed out um uh some of these ideas and and have now i think a perspective on on them so when we meet founders we um can kind of speak the language and and have you know have gone as deep as as mocking up these ideas and have um so that's been helpful the web three kind of chapter one question whether we're a crypto fund we're i don't think it's kind of necessary to like come out and say we're a crypto fund um to me it's largely kind of proof of work right where you have a portfolio that kind of speaks to itself speaks for itself and we've done over 20 investments in the space and i think have a track record that's competitive with a lot of the crypto native funds who we work with and love working with so um i don't feel that the need to kind of like say we're a web3 fund or crypto fund but um you know in terms of where we're spending our time at you know we're spending 100 of our time in in the space so i think the uh the portfolio will probably look pretty um pretty much like a crypto native fund and then the solo gp question you know i i started chapter one as a solo gp kind of out of necessity um i didn't have partners around the table i wasn't I, I raised fund one while i was still at tinder so it wasn't um there wasn't like this grand vision for building a team the uh as i've done this full time i think i've recognized more that i need to build a team because the a the market's hyper competitive so to compete you um it helps to have have a team around you and then um, I, I think the second part is I just really love being on teams and have always enjoyed having teammates. And, um, and so, uh, I'm actively like, I think one of the uphill battles probably of what are like the chapter one brand is, is, is getting out of this like solo GP bucket and saying, uh, and we're kind of removing myself from from like being the the front center of of the fund at all at all times and saying um hey there's a really great team around me that um that we're building and they're amazingly smart in in ways that um that probably I'm not and so we complement each other really well and um so yeah we're trying I'm trying to get us out of this other GP, GP bucket I think a lot of probably solo founders um deal with this too and it you know, again, it was a way to get started. I think the one of the benefits of being a solo GP, at least for now, is that um, when we add teammates to the equation, we can be really generous with equity and carry, and um, and have just like a larger pool to distribute. So that's been um, a bonus for sure. And but yeah, and, and what makes this different, I think, was the last question was we're 
hyper focus on um on product design um uh and just and kind of growth and distribution as our our core themes but i say product and design are really core to what we do and so when we work with teams we kind of tell them um you know we we're not good at everything like i'm probably not going to be the best person to give you sales advice if you're um if you're building out a, a sales team or whatever it might be like we're really focused on helping you get from zero to one with with your your experiments and your your ideation the stage we're investing is pre-seed and seed so it's there tends to be kind of like um there's not generally like a vp of product and we try to help fill some gaps and just be um a voice of reason for for teams who are making tough decisions as to which products they should build and um and and kind of where to where to spend their their engineering energy and so that's a big piece of it but um but again i think it's a work in progress and probably what what chapter one looks like now will be much different in a couple of years well, that was a, a very impressive answer to a, a lot of questions. So I appreciate it. And uh, I'm excited to see what you do with, with chapter one uh, moving forward. Uh, I know we're running up on time. So I want to thank you again, Jeff, for, for coming on the show. It's been uh, awesome talking with you and appreciate your, your candor and transparency throughout the conversation and, and thought we touched on some really interesting things and uh, not 100% crypto, but some <laughs> crypto. Uh, yeah, so I like where can, combo. So yeah, it's really fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so where can and thanks for coming on. So so where can uh, people in, in closing go and, and follow uh, you and, and Chapter One? Where do you want to send people to uh, keep along with your journey? Yeah, I would say the easiest place is JMJ on Twitter. So at JMJ, and then um, you know, obviously we have a Chapter One Twitter account, which is at Chapter One. But really, um, yeah, follow me on Twitter. Um, hope hope uh hope this was interesting and um and see you online awesome well uh thanks jeff and founders listening in uh you know you know where to go for your next investment obviously jeff's a good guy <laughs> and uh sure i'll be happy to invest if, if it's worth it so uh thanks again jeff it was, it was awesome talking with you yeah appreciate it